As some of you may already know, I grew up as the youngest of three kids. That means I was the baby. That means that I was my mother's favorite, that I got away with way more than I probably should have. But that was kind of balanced out by the fact that I was the youngest of three, and so my siblings, they, they didn't always take it easy on me. I, I was taken advantage of in multiple different ways because I was the youngest, because I didn't know any better. For a while there, my sister, whenever she wanted me to do something, she would just preface it with, Mom says. Mom says you need to go set the table. Or Mom says you need to pick up the living room. Mom did not say that I needed to do that. She just wanted me to do it for her. In fact, Mom probably told her to do it, and so she delegated or something like that. My brother was a little bit nicer, but I'm sure that, that I frequently fell for the whole, I'll give you three pennies for your one dime, because three is more than one. And being little, I didn't know any better. I got the short end of the stick multiple times because I was the youngest. But that wasn't always the case. I had my fair share of victories. And one of them that I'm probably the most proud of was the blue chair. In our living room, we had two chairs and a couch. The, the favorite chair was the pink chair. That was the chair that everybody fought over. That was the chair that if dad was home, dad sat in that chair. If mom sat down to watch TV and dad wasn't there with us, mom sat in the pink chair. And whenever we had no parents around, all of us kids fought over the pink chair. If you didn't get the pink chair, well, then you kind of took the, the blue chair as a concession. It wasn't as fluffy, it wasn't as nice, but it was better than the couch. Because the couch was farthest away from the TV. The couch was a little bit scratchy, and the couch you probably were going to have to share with somebody. So nobody wanted to sit on the couch. The problem was I was the youngest. And whenever it came to sitting in the pink chair, whether it was calling dibs or a flat-out race to the pink chair, I always lost. And so, if you didn't get to sit in the pink chair, you immediately called the blue chair. And I still didn't win that race, and frequently I was stuck sitting on the couch. And so finally I decided I was going to change that. I decided that I didn't like the pink chair. What I really wanted to sit in was the blue chair. And so while everybody else was fighting over the pink chair, I would just call the blue chair and I would go to that one and I would always get the blue chair. I didn't have to sit on the couch anymore. And it, it started out, you know, kind of a, you know, I'll go ahead and sit there so that I don't have to sit on the couch. But over time, I actually kind of grew to like the blue chair. It, like I said, it wasn't as fluffy as the pink chair, but for a small child, it had plenty of padding, and it was kind of a little bit fuzzy. I, I actually genuinely liked the blue chair. And so it was really hard for me when my mom decided to get rid of it. And I, I don't remember if it broke or if, if she just got a new chair or what it was, but I literally cried when we had to get rid of that blue chair. And my mom, being the great woman that she is, she ended up cutting a portion of it out and, and padding the, 
the, the chair in my bedroom so that I could always have a piece of that blue chair. But that blue chair and I had been through a lot. You know, I had sat there watching countless cartoons on Saturday mornings wrapped up in a blanket or, or watching movies or, or whatever it may be. But it wasn't just watching TV that I did in that chair. You see, as a kid, I was a curious kid. And curious kids know that one of the best ways to get information about what's going on in the family, what's going on in the house, is to listen while mom's on the phone. And our, our phone was in the kitchen, so whenever my mom would get a phone call, I would find a reason to sit at the kitchen table and listen in. And if you're a parent, you know you don't want your kids necessarily listening to all your phone calls. And so when my mom would realize that I was sitting there in the kitchen listening, she would shoo me out of the kitchen to go do something else. And that was when I would go into the living room, which was just off the kitchen. I would turn off the lights and I would sit in the blue chair. Because the blue chair was positioned with its back to the kitchen. So she couldn't see that I was there. And yes, I was absolutely doing specifically what my mom said not to do. But I would sit there and I would listen to the phone calls that my mom had. And if you've ever listened in on someone else's phone call, you know you don't get the whole story. You only get half of what's going on because you can't hear the other side of the conversation. And so you kind of have to piece together the other half based on what you know from what you can hear. And that's the same problem that we have as we're, as we're reading through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. There is, is more going on. We know exactly what Paul is saying. We have his letter and what he is saying to that church, but there's more to it than what Paul is saying. What sparked this letter? We know that this was not his first letter to that church. So we missed out on that part of the conversation. But there's also a letter that the church in Corinth wrote to Paul. And that's the other part of the conversation that we don't know about. That letter has been lost to history, but we know that it exists because in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul starts by telling them, now for the matters that you wrote about. That tells us you're only getting half the conversation. There was another part to this conversation that you don't know about that is not included in this letter. And from this point on, from chapter 7 to the end of the, to the letter, where Paul's going to address what was in that letter. He's going to answer their questions. He's going to address their concerns. But he's not going to tell us what the questions are necessarily. Because the people in Corinth already know what they asked. And Paul already knows what they asked. And so he's not going to rehash it. Just like you're not going to repeat everything the other person said on the telephone. And so we, reading this letter centuries later, we're, we're eavesdropping on Paul's conversation with the church in Corinth. We're listening in on his phone call, and we're only getting half the conversation. But looking at what he says, we can kind of piece together what they were asking and the problems that they were having. The first issue that he addresses in, in chapter 7, believe it or not, is about marriage and sex. And yes, I too am getting tired of talking about sex. 
Apparently this was a big problem that this church was having, and so because they're addressing it, we are still talking about it. Um, but this time we're going to be looking at it from a different perspective. So in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul kind of summarizes this time what the question was. He says, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now this statement here, this is nothing more than a reference. This is, this is so that they can be on the same page, so that they, they know what he is talking about. Paul is not saying, everybody in the church, listen to me. Everybody needs to stop having sex, period. That's not what Paul is saying. Not one little bit. He's framing the discussion so that they know, hey, that letter you wrote and this question you asked, that's what I'm going to talk to you about. And so he, he's framing this so that they know what he's referring to. Because remember, last week we kind of spoke about this Greek philosophy that they had, this way of thinking, of the, the dichotomy between the spirit and the body. That the spirit was inherently good, and the body was inherently evil. And so many took that idea, and they said, well, if the spirit's good and the body's evil, then it doesn't matter what I do with the body, it's already evil, so I will just indulge every desire that the body has. And Paul spoke against that in chapter 6. But now we're looking at the inverse argument. We're looking at the people who said, well, the, the spirit is good and the body is evil, so we need to subjugate, we need to, to cleanse and, and purify the body. And so their idea is sex as a physical desire is bad. Therefore, in order to subjugate the body, in order to, to purify and cleanse the, the spirit, we must completely abstain from sex if we're going to live a life that is devoted to God. And so Paul is responding to this very idea when he goes on in verse 2 and says, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another that. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, as we're reading these words from Paul, we have to understand what he's saying. We have to understand the, the reason that he's writing it and, and what he's saying. Paul is not trying to write a, a thesis, a, a dissertation, a, a summary of, of all of the institution of marriage. That is not what he is doing. Paul is writing 
a specific answer to a specific church regarding a specific question. And so don't, don't take these words and say, well, this is an all-encompassing view of, of what marriage is or what it's supposed to be. If you base your view of marriage on just this passage of Scripture, you're going to get a watered-down view of marriage. Now, the message that Paul is, is conveying to this church for this specific question, the overall message isn't that hard to understand. I mean, it's pretty easy to decipher. The kids who are paying attention probably can get the gist of what Paul is saying. But if we wanted to figure out what their original question was, obviously it deals with sexual relations. And so it probably was something along the lines of, well, you know, since, since the body is bad, that was their idea, since sexual desires detract from our worshiping God, then Paul, hey, is, shouldn't we just completely stay away from sex? And Paul had a multifaceted answer and said, if you are married, well, then you need to stay married. I know some of you are disappointed, but if you're married, you need to stay married and fulfill your marital duties to your spouse. If you are not married and you cannot control those desires or those urges, then you should get married so that you can fulfill those desires in a constructive manner with your spouse. But if you're not married and you don't feel the need or the urge to get married, then that's okay. You do not have to get married. It's okay to stay single. In fact, Paul says that it, it's better to do that if you can handle it. So let's go ahead and dive a little deeper into each of these so we can kind of flesh out what it means in your life and in mine. And we'll start with those who are married. If we take Paul's words addressed to the married people and we read just these words out of context, they sound really bad. To, to tell women, women, you do not own your body. You do not have authority over your body. Your body belongs to your husband. That sounds extremely sexist. But if we, if we kind of read just the following verse and get a little bit more context, where he says, men, men, you don't own your body. You don't have authority over your body. Your body belongs to your wife. Yeah, that sounds a little bit better, but it still kind of sounds like, slavery in some way he gets to tell me what to do i get to tell him what to do and and it's just you're you're slaves to one another it still sounds kind of bad like i said we can't look at just this passage we need to look at the broader context of marriage within scripture and we can see that by jesus's own words in matthew chapter 19 where he said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. You are joined to your spouse as one flesh. Husbands, you are joined to your wife. She is a part of you, and you are a part of her. Wives, you are joined to your husband. He is a part of you, and you are a part of him. But what does that mean in this regard to sex? What that means is you guys need to be there for one another. That it's not just about you. It's about taking care of the other person in this regard and others. 
don't use sex as a tool. Don't use it as a carrot to dangle out in front and say, if you do what I want, then you'll get this. But if you don't do as I say, then you're not going to get any. That is not how it is to be used. That is manipulative. And Paul's saying that will lead your spouse into temptation. That's going to lead them down a path that you don't want them to go down. So don't, don't manipulate them. They own you as much as you own them. You too are one flesh. You have a responsibility to care for your spouse's needs. And that includes what Paul calls your marital duty. And yes, that may sound a little dirty, but I mean, let's be honest, that's part of the reason you got married, was so that you could fulfill those marital duties. But that's not to say that's not to say that you can never say no, that when your spouse says they want something that you have to give in right then. That's not what we're saying here. There are totally justifiable reasons to say no. But when you do, when there is a difference of opinion, consider your spouse's needs to be equal to your needs. Consider your spouse's desires to be equal to your desires and take care of one another. Also, Paul says that there are times when maybe you'll, you'll agree that you're just going to not do that for a while so that you can focus on God. And Paul says in times like that, you guys need to be in agreement. It's not a, well, I'm going to do this and you're just going to have to suffer. No, come together, taking care of one another, and agree and make the time brief so that you don't succumb to temptation, so that temptation doesn't overwhelm you. But as Paul says, that's not the ideal scenario. The ideal scenario, Paul says, he says, I wish that all people were like me. He says, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Now, a little bit of Paul's history. We, we talked about Paul was a Pharisee. Those were the, the Jewish leaders that were very much into the rules. They made the rules, they followed the rules, they made sure everyone else followed the rules as well. And so Paul grew up in this, this culture of you're going to follow all the rules whether you want to or not. And one of the, one of the things that was considered the duty of a man was to get married as soon as possible. So it's reasonable to, to say that since Paul was a Jewish man, and Jewish men were expected to get married, that Paul, at some point, was married. But as we read through his letters, we can see that Paul obviously is not married. So, what happened? Why isn't Paul married? That's something that's been lost to history. We don't know what happened to him. Maybe his wife died. Maybe when he converted to Christianity, his wife said, uh, no, you're not being a good Jew, and took off. We don't know what happened. But what we do know is that Paul did not remarry. And he calls people, when he's calling people to be like him, he's talking about this aspect of his life. He's talking about singleness. A week or so ago, I... I saw a post from a, a fellow pastor online, and, and he was sharing something that his daughter had, had shared online, and he got her permission and, and everything. But she's a, a young lady um, venturing out on her own, and she 
voiced her frustration. She, she felt that she was not, at least at this time, being called to, to settle down and get married. Um, and so she wanted God's input. She wanted to know what God said in regards to, to not being married. And so she began to, to get devotional books and stuff like that on singleness. But as she read through those books, she said over and over again, they, they kind of spoke of singleness as a temporary situation. Something that was only for this period in your life. And they regularly encouraged you to, to pray for your future spouse or who God was going to have you marry in the future. And that's kind of our mindset. <clears throat> we, we live in, in rural America. We have very conservative values. I mean, I grew up and, and the expectation, the, the mindset, the roadmap that was given was you're going to graduate high school. Maybe you'll go off to college. Somewhere in there, you're going to meet somebody and you're going to get married. Maybe you'll start a career, but then you're going to start having kids. And that was kind of the, the expectation that everybody is going to follow this path. And if somebody didn't follow this path, people began to wonder. If you got married but didn't have any kids, people were like, what's wrong? Why aren't they having any kids? Can they not have kids? Are there, is there trouble in their marriage that they're not coming together? Why is it that they're not having kids? Or, heaven forbid, those who didn't get married, people began to wonder as well. What's going on in their lives? Is there something wrong? Is there something wrong with them? And we have this, this expectation that everybody is going to get married, but that expectation is not biblical. Paul is talking here to the single people in the church. He's talking to the widowed and to those who are just younger and not married. And specifically to them, he tells them, it is good to remain single. As we talked about in chapter 6, when you are a Christian, when you, when you give your life to God, you become a part of Christ's body. You are joined together with Christ. When you get married, you, you join yourself to another person in addition to being joined with Christ. And marriage, marriage is good. Marriage is, is, is helpful, but marriage has its obligations. Marriage has, it brings with it responsibilities. And when you have your, your marriage responsibilities and your responsibilities to God, you run the risk that those responsibilities are going to come into conflict with one another. That your, your responsibilities to one person are going to conflict with your responsibilities to another. And they may prohibit you from doing what God wants you to do. Now, I am lucky. I am very fortunate that, that my wife um, is, happily supports as I seek to follow God and, and encourages me and helps me through difficult situations. But I've known others. When I was in college, there were other pastoral students who were, were doing all the stuff that they needed to do to prepare for ministry, but they could only go so far because their spouse wasn't on board. Their spouse didn't want to be the pastor's husband or the pastor's wife. And so they were trying to go where God led, but they were being held back because of their other obligations. I've known pastors, I know pastors today, 
who are tied down to one specific area because their spouse refuses to go anywhere else. Marriage has its benefits. There are many good things to say about marriage, but it also has its risks. It also may prohibit you in other areas. That's why Paul says that it's better to remain single. If you can remain single, then your commitment is not divided. Your commitment is to God alone. You have no obligation to another person. That's why Paul says this is the ideal scenario. If you can stay committed to God alone, that's what you should do. But you may say, well, that's just Paul's opinion. Paul, Paul had a bad marriage. Paul, you know, things fell apart for him. And so he just wants everybody to, to live just like he did. God, however, wants us to get married. God wants us to have children. But this opinion of Paul is the same opinion that was shared by Jesus as explained or, or detailed in a conversation he had with his disciples when they said to him, if that's the way things are between a man and a wife, then it's better not to marry. And Jesus replied, not everybody can accept this teaching, but only those who have received the ability to accept it. For there are eunuchs who have been eunuchs from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by other people. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs because of the kingdom of heaven. Those who can accept it should accept it. Those who can live the life of celibacy, dedicating themselves only to God, should do it. Again, this is not a a summary of all of marriage. This is not a, a deep theological understanding of, of what marriage is or the significance of marriage. This is a specific answer to a specific church regarding a specific question about sex and marriage. And if we've learned anything about the church in Corinth, they clearly liked sex. They, they clearly Based on the amount of time Paul has spent on this topic and made us all tired of talking about it, they have, they have very much liked this. And so celibacy, singleness, was probably not their gifting. Not everybody is positioned in such a way. Not everybody has this gifting to be able to accept that way of life as good as it may be. And so the main takeaway... As we've eavesdropped on this conversation, as we've kind of gleaned what we can from, from what we can hear of this side of the phone call, what we need to take away from this, what we need to understand is that if you are married, then you need to stay married. Marriage is a beautiful institution that has been given to us by God, the joining together of a man and a woman as one. Where one is weak, the other is strong. One completes the other. They, they come together as something more full than the single one was. But marriage brings with it obligations. Marriage brings with it responsibilities. The responsibility to care for one another. To, to do what is necessary to complete the other person. 
to satisfy your duty as a husband or a wife. And these responsibilities may inhibit your ability or may limit your ability to follow God. Singleness. Singleness is not to be looked down upon. Just because it's not the, the roadmap that you were given does not mean that those who are single are in, in any way despised or, or looked down upon. They're not shunned or being punished by God in any way, shape, or form. People who are able to live this life, frankly, they're more able to, to focus upon God. They're more able to have that deep intimacy with God and follow His guidance. And so singleness in that regard is very good. And if you can remain single, then do so. But if you're like the people in Corinth, if you don't have that gifting, if your desires are more than you can control, then by all means, get married. There is nothing wrong with being married. And there is nothing wrong with being single. Marriage is not superior to singleness, and singleness is not inherently better than marriage. Each, each has its role. Each has its purpose. Each person following each path has their own giftings and their own callings from God. And so whatever your calling is, follow God. It's not sinful to, to have sex with your spouse to fulfill your marital duties. It is not sinful to remain single or, or celibate. Whatever path God has led you down, whatever, whatever life has brought your way, whether you are married or whether you are single, follow that path. Commit yourself to God and follow with confidence. Be married, be single with all the confidence in the world and do all of it for the glory of God. For that's that's the, the biggest part of it. Whatever you do, do it for God's glory. Whether you're married or single, follow God. Trust in Him and commit your life to Him in its entirety. Heavenly Father, God, we, we thank you for who you are. And God, whatever path you have put us on, some people... Some people desire to be married, but never, it never comes to fruition. Some people find great happiness in marriage. Some people are able to, to be single and to, to live the, the fullest life possible because of it. God, help us to not look down on others for the path that you've called them down. Help us to... Help us to, to have a deep understanding of, of who you are and what you've called us to. God, may we, as husband and wife, as a single person, God, may we devote our lives to you. And God, may we follow you with all of our hearts down the path that you have laid out with the giftings that you have given to each and every one of us. And God, may you receive the glory in all that we think, say, and do. In your holy name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys, and we will see you next week.